This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hey, everybody. Welcome into another Pipeline podcast. Tim McMaster here along with Jonathan Mayo and Jim Callis of MLB Pipeline. We are into the postseason at the major league level. The Arizona Fall League getting ready to go at the minor league prospect level. Um, but the thing we're going to start with on the podcast this week. Oh, before we get to the what we're going to start with, though. Fantasy. Our fantasy league is over. We're going to rehash who won. It's the guy we all kind of thought would going into it because he took it all way too seriously. But we'll get to that at the end of the podcast. Uh, we're going to start, though, with market corrections. You guys have done this again, uh, reworked the top 100, moved guys around a little bit based on, I guess, the what has happened since the trade deadline when you released the last um, batch and, and rankings. So let's start there. Two new names, Jonathan, into the top 15 Alex Kirilov goes from 30 to 10. Big jump for him. Wander Franco goes from 40 to 14. Let's start with Kirilov. Was it that great a late surge for him during the season? I, I think it was, you know, not just the late surge. It was an all-year surge, and you know, I think we were continuously uh, correcting for him. I mean, this is a guy who wasn't in the top 100 to start the year because he was coming back from Tommy John surgery, and we didn't really know what to expect, and you know. Not only did he hit in the Midwest League and hit for a ton of power, and then he got promoted to the Florida State League and uh, hit better um, in, in a lot of ways. You know, a little less power, but it's the Florida State League. But the power was still there, um, and he hit 362 in the Florida State League. So it just kept going. Uh, so I think this was just a, uh, a correction to show that uh, we now, uh, and he is considered one of the best pure hitters in, in all the minor leagues. I mean, he finished... 348 average, 392 on base, and 578 slugging. You know, the guy only struck out 86 times, but homered 20 times and drove in 101 runs uh, while playing in less than uh, hitter-friendly environments. So uh, yeah, there, was, there was good reason for him to have a, a big up arrow next to his name. How about Frank? Hey, oh, say, oh, go ahead, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I keep trying out the line. I really do think that next year, when Vladimir Guerrero Jr. and Eloy Jimenez graduate belatedly to the big leagues, um, I, I think we may be talking about Alex Kerloff as the best all-around hitting prospect, not five-tool guy, but just hitting prospect in terms of power and average in the minor leagues. Uh, you know, he's that special. And, Tim, I just want to throw in one quick thing. You know, this is something new we've done this year. We've done it a couple times. And it was really kind of born, uh, I think part of the driving force, Jonathan, was last year at this time going into the fall league. We had, based on our midseason list, Victor Robles ranked slightly ahead of Ronald Acuna. And as much as I like Victor Robles and I like him a lot, it was just kind of grading, I think, every time those rankings were trotted out, and they get trotted out a lot during the Arizona Fall League. At that point, Acuna had clearly passed Robles. So it's just, you know, we didn't overhaul the whole list, but we, we, we moved, you know, we, we kind of redid the top 15, 
and then made some, you know, adjusted some guys who needed some significant adjustments, but it wasn't a, a total revamp. It was more just kind of, of resetting it a little bit. Yeah, and I think it's great, and it's obviously something, like you said, that's new this year, and I think people appreciate it because they do get dated after a couple of months or, or so as far as the rankings go, and people look at them, and that's when you end up, I think, getting people complaining as they see what a guy's doing and where he's ranked, and now there's a way to kind of fix that as far as pipeline goes. It's great. All right, how about Franco? I'll go back to you, Jonathan. 40 to 14, another big leap into that top 15. Yeah, and that's, you know, are we rolling the dice a little tiny bit? I guess maybe, um, only because he's still uh, far away. But, you know, there have been so many times where we've seen uh, guys who are big international signs and we hear about the tools and how incredible the tools are. And then, you know, you have to wait for them to actually show up in games. And he came out, made his professional debut uh, in the Appalachian League, not in the Dominican Summer League, not in the Gulf Coast League, in, in, in the Appalachian League, and hit 351 and slugged 587, had 11 homers. I mean, I don't remember the last time I saw uh, a 17-year-old uh, player, international player, come and walk 27 times and strike out 19 in his professional debut. I mean, it was astounding what he did. Uh, and, you know, there is a pretty strong belief that those tools are, are real. And he's going to, you know, I could see him moving quickly, assuming he continues to swing the, the bat like that. And then it's not going to matter whether he stays at shortstop or, or, or not. Uh, just uh, I think it was the, the wow factor of the pro debut with the advanced approach uh, that gives us a little more confidence that uh, he's going to be able to kind of carry over, continue what he did during this, this debut once he hits full season ball next year. I mean, his debut was really kind of reminiscent of what Vladimir Guerrero Jr. did a couple of years ago in the Appy League. And I'm not necessarily saying, he, I mean, <laughs> I don't know if I can love a prospect as much as I like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. <laughs> but, um, you know, Franco has that kind of, you know, his upside's pretty close. I mean, we may be talking about him a year from now in the same, you know, he's the next great international star prospect uh, in the minors now that, that Vlad's about to graduate. All right, I want to touch on a few more of the guys that were on the rise, starting with a guy that was just drafted in June. It's hard to make a big leap when there's that small of a sample size overall, but Joey Bart, the number two pick in the draft, goes from 35 to 23. Jim, what's that based on? Because I know you guys only take so much into account from a first pro season. Yeah, I mean, it's not, and these things, it's not necessarily based on, okay, who was hot over the last six weeks in the minor league season. We weren't trying to get all caught up in, in stats, but I mean, the, the, you know, anytime you do a prospect list, it's kind of a snapshot of that moment in time, and, and as you mentioned, Tim, they change. Like, you know, the, the, if we were to just start from scratch, our list would look different than, than what we did in, at the end of July. And I think with Bart, I think the main thing we were trying to do there was just reflect that, that I think we all believe he's the best catching prospect in baseball. We moved him up slightly ahead of Francisco Mejia. You know, I, I still I, I still am a little unclear as to what the Potters are going to do with Mejia. You know, they called him up. I thought the idea was to let him catch regularly in September, and he didn't catch a lot. I personally, I just think that there, there's enough going on that needs to be fixed behind the plate. 
that he's going to wind up being more productive as an outfielder and just let him maximize his bat. But, but with Bart, you don't have those concerns. I mean, yes, he had a great debut. He hit 13 homers in you know about a quarter of a season, threw out 39% of base stealers. I mean, we knew he had power. We knew he had arm strength. You know, he called his own game at Georgia Tech. Uh, you know, he's, he's worked very hard to go from a guy who coming out of high school was a very good prospect. There are some questions. You know, can you polish up the receiving? There are no questions now. I just think he's the best all-around catcher in the game. And so moving him up there, we was trying to reflect that. If my math skills are serving me correctly, Jonathan, the biggest leap um, from a guy that was in the top 100, staying in the top 100, Tuki Toussaint, the right-hander from the Braves, who got it done at the big league level late in the year, 73-40, to 40, so a 33-spot leap from Tuki, for Tuki. Yeah, and it's it's easy to see why. And you know, I do the Braves top thirty, so and and did the, the Diamondbacks top thirty when he was first there. So watching his uh, evolution and his development has been fascinating. You know, I saw him uh, back in the NHSI when he was in high school, and uh, you know, he struggled uh, initially, especially command wise. And there was a lot of talk of, oh, maybe this guy's going to need to be a reliever. Uh, and obviously with a guy that young and that an electric and arm, you, you don't give up on starting in, until you get to a point where it's really not working or you need them in, in relief. And, uh, you know, this year he made a huge step forward. Um, you know, his, his command has gotten so much better. No one's talking about needing him to become a reliever full-time uh, at, at any point, uh, you know, in, in the near future. Struck out close to 11 per nine in two minor league stops. And then, and then the big league stop where he not only got called up, but actually uh, contributed. He's on the postseason roster now. Um, and he made a huge impact in Atlanta. Uh, this was not just a September call up, let guys give some rest. He made a couple of big starts and, and rose to the occasion. And, uh, you know, I think he is uh, close to cementing himself as part of that, that young rotate rotation, uh, you know, for the immediate and, and potentially long-term future. All right, Jim, one more guy on the risers, and this is one of the more fascinating guys on the list, I think, because when you think about the market corrections, it was a bit of a roller coaster ride for Michael Chavis, the Red Sox third baseman. Obviously, he was a top 100 guy. Um, he got the suspension to miss the first 80 games of the season um, for the PEDs. He fell out of the top 100, and then he came back, and prove that he can still hit, and now he rises from 96. He had inched his way back into the top 100 because of graduations. From 96 to 69, he jumps 27 spots, and it seems like after all that movement, Michael Chavis is now what we thought he was back before the suspension. Yeah, I mean, it's a tough situation. I mean, yes, I think he showed that that you know whether you believe he was a PED user or if that was an inadvertent positive test, like he, he says, you know, he still continued to hit for as much power as he did last year when he was third in the minors in extra base hits and fifth in home runs. I mean, it, it, it's a weird situation because, look, I mean, the vast majority of these cases, you, you know, the guys will have an excuse or, you know, proclaim they don't know what happened. In Chavis's case, you know, the, the substance he tested positive for is one that, Virtually everybody who's tested positive for has been totally mystified and devastated that they tested positive. They have no idea how it happened. And not that they're absolving him, but if you talk to the Red Sox, they will off the record tell you 
that it made no sense to, to think that he was doing anything because he tested positive in the off season. Like, like why when he's tested during the regular season and he's having a great year, it never shows up, and then he, he tests positive in the off season uh, when he's done, you know, when he's done playing. So I, I think the Red Sox believe that, that that something goofy happened. But regardless of that. I mean, didn't test positive when he came back, continued to drive the ball. It'll, it'll be very interesting to see what happens in Boston. You know, Rafael Devers, who's, who's still younger than Chavis, did not have a great year. Um, you know, I don't know if Chavis could perhaps push him next year. Um, it'll be interesting to see that. And, and then you also have another third baseman, Bobby Dahlbeck, hit 32 homers this year and, and has probably more raw power than either one of them. Uh, you know, and you know, not to mention the first-round pick, Tristan Cassis from this year. I think is probably going to be first, but they're playing him at third as well. But I, I, you know, getting back to the, the the gist of your question, yeah, I think basically Chavis, you know, whether you believe he he was a PED user or not, um, showed that you know his power is for real, and so we kind of restored him, uh, like you said, to probably where he would have been had he not had the positive test. All right, let's move on to the Fallers and um, Luis Robert, the outfielder for the White Sox. Obviously, just a tough season. He falls from 25 to 44 on this market correction. Um, he missed most of the year, Jonathan. Um, when he came back, I guess the biggest thing with this fall, right, is, is not that he missed most of the season. It's that he didn't really get going once he came back. Yeah, I mean, we try not to knock a guy you know, too much for, for an injury, uh, especially if it's something maybe, you know, he's going to come back for. You know, I think the one sort of exception to that, uh, in my mind, often is if it's a, a serious shoulder injury for, for a pitcher. You know, as unfortunate and unfair as that may seem, those are tougher to come back for. But he had a thumb injury, um, and that, that may have, you know, caused him some problems even when he came back just in terms of getting a feel and, and, and things like that. But uh, he just really didn't do much, you know, when he was on the field, 625 OPS. And so, you know, it was a small sample size because he didn't play a whole lot of 32 games in the Carolina League. But that's why we didn't drop him, you know, out of the top 50. You know, the tools are still impressive. I think he's a chance to kind of uh, sort of shake this off and learn from it and come back next year and, and, and you know, make his way back on the list. But we, we felt that this correction was – was warranted just because of the struggles he showed, uh, you know, when he was on the field. And I kind of felt too, Jonathan. Like, I, you know, and I, I'm not blaming anyone. It's probably my fault as much as anybody because I do the White Sox. I always felt like maybe we were a little bullish on him to begin with, and so I, I almost felt like when we were talking about moving him down, it was more just kind of correcting for our bullishness. So much more so than oh, you know, he had 32 games and he, he had a 6.25 op, so we were punishing him. It was just kind of reflective of that. Yeah, I think that's fair, and the same the same probably could be said for his organization mate Nick Madrigal, who we may have, uh, you know, and, and people may look at hit the surface numbers from Madrigal in his first you know season summer of, of pro ball after being drafted, and he did kind of what you expect him to do. He hit for average. Uh, he drew walks. Uh, and he didn't strike out at all. Um, you know, he put the ball in play a lot. He, he did kind of what he stole some bases. What Nick Madrigal should should do, but I mean, we knew there wasn't going to be power, but there was a severe lack of power. Um, if you even look at his spray charts, uh, it looks like he didn't hit a ball to the warning track all summer. So uh, that I think was another indication. Not so much of a oh, Nick Madrigal is 
you know, we're knocking him because of the lack of power thing, but maybe we overranked him a little bit. Um, I think we do have a tendency to get excited about the guys out of the out of the draft. Some of it's just familiarity, I think, because we have been talking about them so much. Um, and he was you know, considered the best pure college hitter uh, in the game, and, and, and in some respects he went out and kind of did what was expected. But you know, sometimes the corrections are just uh, uh, checks on ourselves to say, all right, we, we, maybe we overdid a little bit on this guy. All right, let's move on to the Arizona Fall League. And we've talked plenty about the big-name stars that are going to be down in Arizona for the AFL. What we haven't talked about is maybe some of the other guys, some sleepers. Some articles going to be up on MLB Pipeline. You can check it out with all the teams. But I want you guys to pick a, a favorite hitter and a favorite pitcher, sleeper, that you're looking forward to going and seeing down at the AFL. Uh, Jim, I will let you go first. You can go either way, pitcher or hitter. Well, I'm going to go Set with the, the hitter, and now I'm wondering if we're going to see him in the Arizona Fall League. Um, and that would be Miles Straw of the Astros, who we, we just got word right before we started recording this podcast that he's going to make their postseason roster. So I guess depending on how long he's in the postseason may affect him. But he, I'm really looking forward to watching him play. He is such an extreme approach. I mean, this guy, he won the minor league batting title a couple of years ago. He's a career 302 hitter in the minors. But, I mean, if you want to talk about spray charts that are fascinating, I mean, he almost never pulls the ball. It's all opposite field. Uh, you know, it's extreme opposite field. Like, whatever you can imagine, an extreme opposite field hitting chart would look like. Just multiply that because you're taking it exponentially because that's Miles Straw. It's an approach that works for him. The problem is, is that he hits for very little power. 376, and I think there's some question among scouts with all of the positioning uh, and shifts that happen at the big league level, will the approach work at that level? That, that said, I mean, he's interesting as a bench guy during the playoffs because he, he could definitely put the bat on the ball. I mean, it's small sample size doesn't mean much, but he went three for nine in, the, in September. But he's got well above average speed. Some guys will even go well above average on the arm strength, and he's a plus defender. So, I mean, you have this guy who's a defensive asset at any position, could also pinch run and steal a base for you, and, you know, is an extreme contact hitter. So I still don't know what to make of him. I, you know, I'll probably get killed again on Twitter. Anytime he comes up and I point out the strengths and also the weaknesses i get astros fans who who kill me for not loving miles straws he's one of the game's best prospects and he's not that but he 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 is certainly intriguing all right jonathan you're up with a hitter i am going to go with Derek hall of the phillies um just because of the raw power and i'm curious to see and we've seen guys come through the Philly system over the years and uh, you know with a ton of power and some some have made it Ryan Howard you know Reese Hoskins some not so much Darren Roof um, but he's kind of an interesting guy he was a 14th rounder out of Dallas Baptist first full season he led the organization in homers and RBIs 29 homers 101 runs better he was in low A ball um, he did it again this year starting in Clearwater, and they made it up to double-A, which we all know Reading is a great place to hit. Uh, but the power uh, was legitimate once again. Now, his overall approach isn't great. Like once he got to double-A, I think he started to try to do too much, and uh, the strikeout rate was close to 24%, uh, which for a power hitter isn't 
so outlandish, but the walk rate was only 5.4%. Um, so I'm curious to see what he does against, uh, you know, against the higher caliber or higher level pitchers uh, that, that he'll see in the fall league. Um, you know, see a lot more breaking stuff. We'll have to really work on that approach so he can tap into that power. But, uh, you know, this is a guy who's hit, you know, 50 plus homers in the last two years combined and, uh, left-handed hitting first baseman. So it'll be interesting to see uh, if he can uh, start to tweak that approach to, during his time in the fall league and, and and start showing that what he did in the lower levels he can do with the upper levels, and that turns him into a a much more intriguing power prospect overall. Jim, how about the pitching side? Um, I'm going to go with Justin Steele, the Cubs. Uh, you know, he was – less famously one of the the three pitchers, the high school pitchers, the Cubs gave million-dollar bonuses to after they saved money by taking Kyle Schwarber fourth overall in 2014. Still got a million dollars as a fifth rounder. And he was really coming on last year. In 2017, he was challenging for the Carolina League ERA title. He blew out his elbow and had Tommy John surgery. And he actually came back earlier than expected, about 11 months later, um, made it up to double-A this year for two starts at the end of the year. And pitched really, really well. Um, you know, he, he's a guy who, you know, works, uh, you know, 92, 97 miles an hour with sink on his fastball when he goes with more of a two-seamer. He, he's curveball can miss bats. And I think the thing that's really encouraging for a Cubs system that has really had trouble developing pitchers to go with all their great young hitters is that even come back from Tommy John, usually your command and control is the last thing that comes back. Well, he came back and and threw more strikes than usual or than he had in the past uh, in the 46 innings he pitched this year. So, you know, maybe Justin Steele will, will break through and be that homegrown starting pitcher the Cubs have been trying to develop for a while. Back to you, Jonathan. Uh, I'm on the fence. I've got, uh, well, I've got, you know, I've, I've got a sidearm reliever and a guy with a chance to start. I'll go with the, with the guy who's got a chance to start. It's Griffin Jacks of the Twins. Um, and back in 2016, he kind of had some uh, some helium as the draft approached. He's at Force Academy. Uh, he was pitching extremely well as their Friday night starter. But the question was, what exactly will his military requirements be? The Twins rolled the dice in the third round, um, and you know he had uh, a brief summer debut. He had to go back and get his degree. Uh, that was. A, a definite requirement. And then there were still some question marks in 2017. He ended up coming late, ended up in, in the Midwest league uh, for, uh, again, a, a briefer amount of time. They've worked something out now where the air force uh, basically put him in the world-class athlete program, uh, which basically means he's not in danger of being called to active duty. And he's mostly going to be representing the air force through what he does uh, on the field. Uh, which means that he can focus on uh, pitching for the Twins. Uh, he, he threw pretty well um, in the Florida State League. The area is 3-7-0. He's a good ground ball pitcher. He's got good stuff. He, you know, he's just he's a little behind because he hasn't thrown a lot of innings, so he'll get a good amount of innings, I would imagine, in the fall league, and I think that could help him make that step to uh, to double A and, and maybe become a, a legitimate starting pitching prospect. All right, the much-anticipated fantasy results from our fantasy draft way back before the season started. You may have, you may or may not remember the draft. Uh, me, myself, Jonathan, and Jim, along with Jason Ratliff, um, our producer on the Pipeline side, uh, Mike Rosenbaum, and then Jordan Schusterman of Cespedes Family Barbecue, all part of it. 
Um, and in the end, from really day one through the entire thing, pretty much, Jim Callis dominated this. Now, we didn't, there were no roster moves. We drafted the teams and we stuck with it. Maybe next year we'll, we'll tweak that. If we do this again, I'd like to do it again. I think it was a lot of fun to, to monitor. But Jim ends up uh, running away 41 points. I finished second somehow, which I don't know how I did because I, I think a month ago I was near the bottom. Then Ratliff is third, Rosenbaum fourth, Jordan Schusterman fifth, and Jonathan. Finished in last. What what happened, Jonathan? Honestly, I don't know. <laughs> so the reason Jim won, or the reasons, I think Shohei Otani being able to take the guy who could pitch and hit certainly helped you, even though he did get injured. Uh, and Juan Soto, obviously, was a great pick. Take a bow, Jim, for Juan Soto. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I liked him. Uh, I certainly didn't think he was going to put up numbers like that in the big leagues. I I thought I'd get a guy who would tear up A-ball and maybe get to double-A by the end of the year, and he was in the big leagues in May. And I mean, the, the, the funny thing about winning the league is if we, if we ran tape, which we're not going to bore people with, I thought the pitching staff would be the strength of my team. I thought Shohei Otani would definitely lead all pitchers in strikeouts. I didn't see him necessarily getting hurt, even though we knew his elbow was bulky. And I dominated hitting-wise and had the worst pitching staff in the league because I pitched about 100 fewer innings than everybody else. I did okay in the rate categories, but I was last in the three total categories. So it, it, it just goes to show uh, sometimes the best laid play, you're, you're better being lucky than good when you're, when you're trying to plan these things. But it was, it was fun. I mean, I'd do it again. Um, I kind of liked how we didn't have to really mess with it after we drafted the guys. I like to, just to pat myself on the back, um, Getting it done at the big league level, I think, with Acuna, who was the number one pick, obviously, a no-brainer there. But then Andujar having a big major league season. And Walker Bueller, I think, was a big factor down the stretch in, in pulling me up to second place. But overall... Yeah, Glaber uh, Torres, too. I mean, yep, you, had three, you went yeah, big you, league at the top, and, yep. and you know, plus yep. Andujar. I mean, you're going to have probably, in the two leagues, four of the top six rookie of the year vote-getters, and I probably guess I have the other two. We should have a and system the, where we take these picks and we can... Uh, keep them into a big league fantasy league and I can just keep all those guys going forward. Right, right. Yeah, getting having you got Peter Alonzo in the <laughs> yep. round, by the way. That that was a pretty good get for you. So uh no kudos to you. I my my big leaguers um were were terrible. Um unfortunately Scott Oh Kingery, Scott Kingery was yep. yeah Kingery was but Austin Hayes fell apart. I mean the only reason the funny thing is, you know, uh up until I would say Maybe the beginning of August, I was like in second place, but there were about three points separating five spots, and then it all it all just sort of went uh, completely uh, south. I had guys struggle. Uh, Vladimir Guerrero uh, carried me, uh, and then he got hurt, and I think that didn't help. And then he he didn't swing the bat quite as well when he came back. So, uh, not that I, I can't blame him, obviously, since he single handedly was my was my offense uh, really for the for the most part, but uh, yeah, I, I would do it again. Um, I like the idea of roster moves. I don't know that we have time to really do it, but um, I think maybe a mid-season adjustment of sorts, maybe next uh, year. Yeah, well, maybe maybe or maybe we tack on five short season players. Oh yeah, well, yeah. When that season starts, yeah, that. So would that be. way, you're not changing anything. We just do a little mini draft. Yeah, yeah. or you could just a, add a three guys on the. T- you could add three guys, even if they're full season. It would be interesting to see. Which way would we go? I mean, do you do you, right. do you you hope you get the draft guy who goes to the Pioneer League and hits 350 over the summer? Yes. 
Well, definitely things to think about over the winter. Uh, to get your suggestions in now to, to Jim and Jonathan. Uh, and maybe, who knows, we'll, we'll see. Maybe we can bring in somebody from the outside uh, to be in the league as well. We'll see what happens as we get closer. We'll have a little more time to plan, I think. We threw this one together a little bit at the last minute. All right, that's going to do it for this podcast. Thoughts on the postseason, guys? All of our, all of our World Series picks. Oh, no, Jonathan, you had the Cubs. Jim had the Astros. I had the Dodgers um, for winning the World Series before the season started. But overall, our picks were very similar and overall not really great. We got the obvious ones right, and, and that was about it. But, um, Jim, who do you th- are you still confident in the Astros? Yeah, I mean, we all know, look, I mean, anything can happen in the postseason. you got to win three rounds, so even the best team is, is no guarantee. And I, I, But I did, I, in the Pipeline Inbox this week, I revisited my preseason predictions and and then went ahead and made my playoff predictions, and I wound up making the same prediction I did at the start of the season, which was Astros over Dodgers in the World Series. So I'll, I'll stick with that one for now. But I, I, the interesting thing to me is I do think you could argue that based on the way the season went that, that, that arguably the four best teams in baseball in the playoffs are in the American League right now. And, and I really feel like the teams are so close in both leagues that – there is not a World Series matchup that would surprise me. I think anything's possible because the teams are so closely matched in each of the two leagues. Yeah, I had Dodgers over Red Sox at the beginning. I guess I'll stick with that just because they're both still alive. I actually, weirdly, kind of feel better about the Dodgers getting into the World Series than I do about the Red Sox, but that's just um, maybe some over... uh, I'm being overcritical of the Red Sox, I think, after they won 108 games. All right, that will do it for the Pipeline Podcast. We're going to have a lot of AFL coverage over the next month or so, so definitely check back in. Um, That'll be mostly from Jim and Jonathan, so uh, thanks for tuning in. Okay. Picture this, it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road, the steeper the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.